is just as likely that the profiles that are supposedly being labeled as coming from the quote-unquote real killer are actually the victim's blood himself. All German news coverage universally takes Jinsering's position. Every German who even knows his name is convinced he was totally railroaded by a corrupt justice system. And I say, you know, I want to publish another perspective. It's, it's really interesting to me that 35 years later, there's still new information coming out. You know, that's incredible to me. It's, it's, it's amazing. And um, I encourage you to keep going if you can. After 18 months of investigating, testing DNA to eliminate alternate suspects, and interviewing new witnesses, we hadn't found unidentified killers who bled at the Hastings crime scene. Instead, we've been introduced to a group of people absolutely convinced that Jens has been lying for the past 35 years. Once you just get into the details of what was actually shown and proven at trial, and before trial, Jens Zering's credibility is completely gone. There's just nothing left. Andrew Hamill is one of the people convinced that Jens is guilty. He's an American attorney and writer living in Germany, and he's written extensively on the case. Another person working to discredit Jens is retired detective Terry Wright. He's one of the two English investigators who interrogated Jens and Elizabeth after they were arrested in London in 1986. His name is on the exhaustive 450-page report that was submitted to the governor of Virginia when Yen's parole and pardon were being considered in 2019. After reading the entire Wright report, listening to audio confessions Yen's gave in 1986, and reading through his entire trial transcript, and talking to another DNA expert with a different interpretation of that unidentified DNA, we were ready to go back to Yen's and his supporters with new questions. We'd been in regular contact with Jens all summer by email. He'd sent us various memos and trial documents from his case, and suggestions about who we should interview. He'd also shared updates from his new life in Germany, and how that country was handling the pandemic. He knew we were reading the right report, and we told him we would give him a chance to respond to any questions raised through our research before we published our new podcast episodes. The discrepancies we found in our research include his claims to us that he'd been denied access to an attorney before questioning, and that he wasn't aware he didn't have diplomatic immunity. We also wanted to let him know we'd eliminated Jim Farmer as a source of the unidentified DNA at the crime scene. We sent Jens an email, asking to set up a time for a final interview. Hey, have you heard anything else from him? Yeah, he's not going to go on the record. Well, that doesn't work. No, I mean, he's the only person that can answer these questions. And we need to hear it from him. In a series of emails, Jens made it clear he would not allow us to use his voice for our podcast or answer questions on the record, citing advice from his German attorney. We turned to his American attorney, Steve Rosenfield, to see if he could answer our questions. Steve also declined an interview, saying Jens had asked him not to speak with us. Jens lost his trial in 1990, convicted of murdering Derek and Nancy Hasem. But from a prison cell, he spent the next 30 years pleading his case in the court of public opinion. In addition to mounting numerous appeals of his conviction, Jens has written multiple books and done countless television and magazine interviews. 
In the process, he's convinced influential people to take up his cause. They say after reviewing the case, they are convinced Jens was wrongfully convicted based on a lack of physical evidence and an inadequate legal defense at trial. The Wright Report says Jens has deliberately created an alternate reality that he's used to draw people into his cause. These lies, the report says, originate from soaring, and he uses other people to repeat them. Regardless of Yen's reasons for telling his story publicly, his supporters have swayed public opinion about the case through their influential platforms. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Uh, it's me, I'm your host, and today we have an episode that is uh, going to rock your world. Um, we have three guests today. Um, I'm going to save the best for last, but we have John Grisham in the studio with us. John, welcome. Delighted to be here. And Sheriff Chip Harding of Albemarle County. Yes, sir. Good to be here. Virginia. And on the phone is Yen Suring, uh, one of the most remarkable people I know and one of the most extraordinary cases of injustice that we've ever covered on this show. That's a clip from Jason Flom's hit podcast, Wrongful Conviction. And it's just one example of the powerful supporters Jens has attracted, who have spoken publicly and fervently about his case. Over the course of our investigation, we've spoken with most of them. Now that we've heard from a group just as convinced of his guilt, we went back to see how Jens was able to build this coalition of prominent supporters, and how they became convinced of his innocence. I felt from the beginning that uh, Jens was innocent. Uh, He... He argued a compelling case when he and I would meet, and he would explain to me some of the nuances of the case. That's Steve Rosenfield. In our interview with him last year, describing Yen's ability to present a detailed explanation for his innocence through his writing and then through conversations. Steve first took Yen's case amid international political turmoil. In 2010, I was asked by a law firm in Washington, D.C., who had been helping Jens uh, try to leave this country under an international treaty that uh, promotes the exchange of prisoners to return to their homeland as a way of better rehabilitation. Governor Kane agreed, which is a requirement of the treaty requirements in the United States, sent a letter to our Attorney General, Eric Holder, and said, uh, we agree that he can be transferred. And then Governor McDonald came in three days later after the letter was sent and rescinded the approval by the Commonwealth. So Jens, uh, who had been in the captain's office with his belongings ready to be released, was told that it has fallen through. So the big law firm did not want to represent Jens in a lawsuit against the governor. You know, I guess because of my politics, I don't really care about suing public officials. And I sued Governor McDonald. The lawsuit lasted about a year and a half. Uh, We lost in the trial court, and then the Supreme Court of Virginia refused to accept the case. And that was the formation of my relationship with Jens. Steve was the first in what would become Jens' coalition of influential figures, fighting for his freedom. In 2016, Steve asked Chip Harding, then Sheriff of County, to take a look at the case as an objective law enforcement expert. 
and he provided him with case documents to review. I brought a bunch of stuff home. Steve dropped a lot more stuff home, and I spent the weekend going through it. The more I went through it, the more I felt like that it's no way you could convict him today based on what I'm seeing here. The, The evidence isn't there for a conviction. At that point, I called a friend, Jason Flom, in New York, and said, you know, do you have any suggestions? He hadn't heard about the Soren case. He said, of course, Jason's very involved, as you know, with wrongful convictions. So he said, what's going on with this case? And he, he got interested in it. Jason told us he'd seen the documentary, Killing for Love, which was created by German filmmakers and released in the United States in 2017, and makes the case for Yen's innocence. I got to know Sheriff Harding, interestingly enough, around the time that I'd seen the movie, but coincidentally, because I was on a panel with him at the university, uh, at the TomTom Festival, which of course is Charlottesville, right? And and we became friends. You know, we spent a fair amount of time together. And of course, we've spent a lot of time together. We visited the parole board together uh, to advocate for Jens. Chip also called his friend and fellow veteran detective in Charlottesville, Richard Hudson, he agreed to review the case and got a call from Steve. Steve called me and asked if I would look at it after talking with Chip, and I said I would, and I told him I'm not in it. You know, I'm not a Yen Suring supporter. Don't don't give me. I said I'm, I, but I would love to look at it to see exactly what my opinion is about. But the chips are going to fall where they do. I mean, if. You know, if he did it, I'm going to say he did it, if that's what the evidence says. And if he didn't, that's what I'll say that too. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a dog in the fight. Richard arrived at the same conclusion as Chip. And in 2017, after two DNA experts, Drs. Thomas McClintock and Moses Shanfield, concluded that two unidentified men had bled at the crime scene, the team assembled for a press conference in Charlottesville to bring attention to Yen's quest for a pardon and wrote letters to the Virginia governor on his behalf. Chip told us in an interview last year that his biggest frustration in the case is Bedford County officials' refusal to reconsider their conclusions about the case and conduct DNA testing on additional crime scene evidence. We say you ought to reopen this case and ask the lab to retest all this DNA, and we would be glad to assist any way we can on the investigation. I'm willing to be sworn in as a reserve deputy with a with the Bedford County Sheriff's Office and work under the supervision of somebody down there if they want pro bono. And they didn't want to have anything to do with it, any of it. There is one person in Bedford who believes in Yen's innocence, Chuck Reed, the original lead investigator in the case. He's also pushing Bedford to take another look at the case, but says there's a simple reason why they won't do it. To me, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this one out. I think it boils down to personalities and pride and politics. Bedford County isn't doing any additional DNA testing, but we have. And in the past several months, we've eliminated all of the alternate suspects named by Jens and his team, with the help of Dr. McClintock, the DNA expert at Liberty University, who was hired by Jens' team to review the 2009 DNA testing report and concluded that two unidentified men had bled at the scene. Dr. McClintock is the one who told us the drifters, William Shiflett and Robert Albright, weren't a match for the unknown DNA. And he also confirmed Jim Farmer was excluded through familial DNA. I think the downside to all this is you're going to get someone out there that says, okay, you've claimed through DNA that Yen Soaring wasn't there. 
now you have two suspects that you thought were there and they weren't there. So even if they were there, they didn't leave any DNA, just like Yen Soaring. Then you have the farmer situation. You see where I'm going with that, how it could be really kind of twisted? We agreed. The DNA test results ruling out the prime alternate suspects weren't helpful to Yen's. And a competing interpretation of the DNA raises more questions. The Wright Report lays out that competing interpretation by using a presumed profile of Derek Hayson's DNA developed from blood at the scene. The report concludes that the unidentified DNA actually belongs to Derek Hasem. Derek Hasem's DNA profile isn't actually on file, since the crime occurred before DNA testing was possible. But Elizabeth Hasem's profile is. We wanted to get Dr. McClintock's thoughts on the claim that all of the unidentified DNA could belong to Derek Hasem, and not to unidentified men. We sent Dr. McClintock an email asking if the unidentified DNA could belong to Derek Hasem, and if he could use Elizabeth's DNA as a comparison. He responded by email, saying, The familial match between Elizabeth and her father is a possibility, but there are many loci or sites that have no response or data. It would be speculation. It seemed like Dr. McClintock was confirming Derek Hasem couldn't be excluded, but we wanted to make sure we understood what he was saying. So a month later, on a Zoom call, we asked him the same question. You were able to, to eliminate or Jim Farmer as a contributor based off of the familial DNA. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so then doing the same thing for Elizabeth, can you rule out Derek? Um, I'll take a look at it. It's been a couple of years since I've went through that. We read him his email from the previous month. I did find that. Okay. So I found the email and I just want to make sure I don't have you do work that you've already done. And then asked him again to confirm that he couldn't eliminate Hasem as a contributor of the DNA. Right. Yeah. All right. So looking at the same data to exclude Shiflet, Albright, and Farmer, and Jens, Dr. McClintock confirmed that Derek Hasem cannot be excluded from any of the unidentified DNA. We also reached out to the second DNA expert hired by Jens' team, Dr. Shanfield at George Washington University. We had interviewed him a year ago, and he told us he thought there were two unidentified men at the crime scene. In an email, we asked if he had a response to the theory that the unidentified DNA could be Derek Hasem's. He didn't respond to any of our specific questions about DNA. Instead, he sent a statement to us and to Jens detailing the blood evidence at the scene. Thus, I am fairly certain, without spending time I don't have, that A, B, and O classifications are accurate, that there is no inculpatory evidence that Yen Soaring was at the homicide scene, unlike Elizabeth, and that the investigating officers had a certain degree of observational bias. With one of the DNA experts hired by Yen's team agreeing it's at least possible the unidentified DNA could be from Derek Hasem, and Yen's and Steve refusing to speak with us, we wanted to hear from the investigators, Chip and Richard to find out if any of the new information has led them to reconsider their conclusions about the case. They both agreed to talk. We interviewed Chip first, and he was extremely skeptical that the DNA could be Derek Hasem's. Could have been, could have been, and it could have been that there was an alien spaceship above that house that, that night. 
The claim that the DNA could be Derek Hasem's is founded on a forensic concept, that blood type and DNA must be considered separately, especially when the tests are done more than 20 years apart. As the Wright Report lays out, and another DNA expert, Dr. Daniel Crane at Wright State University, explained to us, a bloodstain from one person could be contaminated by skin cells, sweat, or saliva from another person, and that's what the DNA test picks up. But Chip isn't buying that's the explanation for the unidentified DNA at the Hasem crime scene. He says he doubts that Derek Hasem's DNA would have contaminated all the unidentified blood and stains that were tested and been the only DNA picked up by the 2009 testing. We told him Dr. McClintock had also confirmed the unidentified DNA could be Derek Hasem's. No, McClintock said that's possible. Possible, sweetheart. It's also possible that the alien came down. What What is the degree of possibility? You appear to have jumped on a wagon. Oh, but it's not the blood. We can't look at it the same. I'm saying. No, I think for really? the past year, we've looked at it as it's the blood. And so now for like the past month, we've been trying We're to understand. Like, okay, so we've spent a year treating them as the same thing and looking for, for all the right. suspects. We're now saying, okay, there's this other possibility that has to be considered and yeah. has Absolutely. to be questioned as yeah. rigorously as we can. But don't run with that like that's 100% either. That's right. what, what I'm saying. Right. But just like trying to understand it because I think that's what we did not understand before. Yeah. And it's something, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely not what has been portrayed by Jens and Steve as a possibility for obvious reasons because it may be a small possibility, but it's, it's not one that benefits Yen's right. case. Right. So right. I get that. Chip hadn't read the right report, and neither had Richard. And he was also dismissive of the alternate DNA theory when we spoke with him. Richard says it doesn't matter because Yen still can't be placed at the crime scene, while Yen's blood type, O, was found at the scene. His DNA wasn't. That O-type blood, whatever it is, it can be Z-type. Hell, I don't, I don't know. That does not match Yen Suring. And over 20 times they used that to convict him in the in the closing argument. Who has O-type blood? Who has O-type blood? Where is O-type blood? It's not him. So it doesn't matter what it is. That's not his blood. But we wanted to clarify. Does he agree that the blood could be from one person and the DNA from another? Okay, so I want to just make sure that I am understanding what you're saying and <clears throat> we are saying the same thing. So what he's saying is that it's, it's a pool of O-blood that there's a skin cell could be a you know so here's my question doc if you've got all this fancy equipment you run that test and figure that out and you tell me you don't say could be you say there is or there isn't because you are the expert and don't say could be because we, we can't operate that way we can't put anybody in jail and we can't let anybody out it's clear neither side is budging on their interpretation of the dna but that's not the only evidence in dispute Next, on Small Town Big Crime, we go back to Elizabeth and Yen's alibi, who stayed in Washington, D.C. the weekend of the murders, and we do forensic testing of our own. So it really is nine and a half. And could there be another scenario, one that no one seems eager to consider? Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. 
When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself, and if you spot us there, say hello.